Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Accelerator Insider, where we go behind the scenes to accelerators, incubators, and studios and talk to the innovators who are creating them. I'm so excited today to have Deepti Pawa here. So hi, Deepti. Hey, hi, Dominic. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Yeah, so super excited for this conversation. We have a lot to talk about. And I think, you know, you kind of, you know, I went on the internet to like learn a little bit about you. And so there's LinkedIn, you have stuff at Stanford, you have a book, we're talking about all of it. So I think folks probably have a little bit of sense of who you are. And so maybe we'll just do a quick start. Um, if you want to share uh, just a little bit about who you are, we're going to dig more into your background in the interview, but love to get a high level sense of what you're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. A very, very high level. Um, you know, I actually work at the intersection of design, branding and innovation management for the past 20 years. And recently released a book, uh, Trailblazer Founders, which is about building leadership skills as a founder. And other than that, I do a host of coaching on innovation and leadership courses with Stanford GSP, also outside of it and working with a lot of accelerators. And primarily the reason I'm here is because I am co-founder of uh, an accelerator incubator at Stanford, which is called Lisa. Uh, that's how we lovingly call it. It's Stanford GSP lead Lisa incubator and startup accelerator. And I'm great to share my experiences here as one of the founding partners. I'm really looking forward to this. So um, just for definition's sake, because when I Googled it, it was like lead slash Lisa. So like, what is the name exactly? <laughs> so you want to know the name of the accelerator? It's called Lisa. And uh, Lisa, it comes from the lead program, which is by Stanford and we're all alumni of lead. And it's Stanford GSB Lead Incubator and Startup Accelerator. And the short form is Lisa. Gotcha. Thank you. So everyone's listening like, what's that? Now we know. Um, and so you co-founded this. So how did you start it? And also, you know, why did you start it? Absolutely. There's a, there's a story behind that for sure. Uh, like I said, I'm an alumni of Stanford GSB um, and specifically their lead business program that focuses on innovation. And uh, the program has executives and leaders represented 55 countries. And when leaders seek to change the world around them, they look to Stanford for inspiration. And for the entrepreneurship ventures coming from Stanford on campus, we have a startup garage that helps incubate ideas and, you know, from within the Silicon Valley and around. But until 2020, um, there was no digital version of an incubation or acceleration program that supports and represents the diverse leaders that are distributed globally who are part of the Stanford LEAD program. And uh, so as one of the alumni members, again, with, you know, with, with a couple of other uh, alumni members, I co-founded this in March 2020 with, um, with more of an experiment at that point in time to give entrepreneurship ventures coming from this community to give it a digital incubation exhibition program. Um, while my co-founders had their own experiences that contributed to them starting Lisa, personally for me, I saw a huge gap at Stanford that needed to be filled. Mm. Um, and the insight I had uh, about that gap was because I also work um, at Stanford as a coach for the innovation and entrepreneurship courses. Mm. Um, and I saw that most projects that came as part of the LEAD program, um, they were innovative beyond imagination and very entrepreneurial, but often stopped as soon as the executives you know, graduated from this program. And there was no way for them to be, you know, taken forward or there was no home to thrive or survive. And that's when, you know, Lisa was born. It was also during the pandemic time, um, you know, Stanford was running their rebuild innovation sprint. And we kind of went to Stanford and said that if what if we started something which is a parallel on the on the online community level as well. Mm -hmm. And the very first cohort, it saw incredible success, even though it was designed only around the pandemic and the issues surrounding the pandemic. Um, eventually, you know, we just this 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 initiative grew from a six people team to now a 500 plus active alumni members supporting these ventures, 150 plus ideas incubated hundreds of VCs, partners, and other operators in the space collaborating with us through speaker series, workshops, facilitation services, you name it. So that's that's the broad story of Lisa. And so talk to me, so you come out of LEAD, so anyone in Stanford alumni can take the LEAD program. That's more of an executive training program. 
but in is that the way or executive maybe support no. network maybe is the right way to language that and then they move into lisa if they have an entrepreneurial bent or interest or business or is it are they doing that in lead as well so um so first of all not everybody can take lead program because it's it's an online version of the master's program at stanford so it's at a one year long um master's innovation program um, at the same time, the people who are coming to it are definitely, you know, on, it's an online program, so everybody comes from different parts of the world. Now, Lisa is um, an alumni-driven community or initiative, which is started by us as alumni, and I would say, you know, me and Edward Mann, we are the two co-founders of this initiative, mm-hmm. and everybody else is actually part of the LEAD program, but now investing their time and energy as part of um as, as a team to give back to the community and helping startups from within the ecosystem also grow, if that makes sense. Yeah, so then that's all coming. And so you don't have to go through LEAD to be part of LISA. Uh, you don't have to be part of LEAD, you have to be part of Stanford. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so because have one, of, we have one, of, yeah. one of the founders has to be from Stanford. That is That is the primary criteria that we have to be entering LISA. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because, um, so I, you know, do some work with Harvard iLab, but I also went to UPenn, so I'm an alum there. And, you know, I went, it actually, from from preparing for this call, I started going going back into like my undergrad. I was like, well, what other in- innovation programs do all, you know, all my schools have? I went to my husband's, so I was looking through. And so, you know, it actually still is quite rare. I mean, there's a lot of alumni or, sorry, uh, alumni ways to engage with the school. And there's a lot of entrepreneurship programs within schools now. A lot of them are bringing them on board, whether they're programs or just like labs or things like that. But there's not that much for alumni, right? And so actually Stanford is probably one of really few that are doing like kind of a really robust alumni support program for entrepreneurship. Yeah, and, and I have to say this is alumni driven. And that's why we take pride in what we've actually built, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, me and my co-founder, Edward Mann, we are always, you know, we'd say we're really proud of the concept that we brought to the table, yes. But in essence, it's an incubation startup accelerator like any other. Mm-hmm. But what we're really proud of is the ecosystem that we've built that thrives and grow, grows on its own. So Stanford mm-hmm. has its support from the perspective of um, you know, helping us connect with the faculty, the staff, they are, you know, providing us with the curriculum that we are, you know, offering as part of, of, of the incubation program. Um, but the entire support system and architecture of it is alumni driven. And uh, it is run by the participation contribution of each and every member who is part of LISA, be it the executive team members, mentors, facilitation experts, advisors, design thinking strategists. I mean, we have a whole ecosystem but everybody is part of this program who is now engaging to help fellow startup entrepreneurs succeed. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is, I think, really wonderful. And I think for folks and listening later, particularly we get some university folks who maybe are building programs in their own universities and things. I think Stanford's a really interesting model um, to look at um, because, you know, there's so many different things you can build. There's labs, there's venture alumni networks being built, there's syndicates, there's all these different kinds of things. But I think the power of the network really shows up when you have the entrepreneur at the center, because uh, it just mobilizes kind of everything around that. And so I love to uh, just kind of know, since starting Lisa, what have been some of the resources that have come, kind of been brought to bear in the program? You know, is it all are venture is it like are you plugging into venture networks are they all stanford networks that are getting plugged in are there external networks that are now participating what's happening um, in terms of resourcing for lisa um so first i'll talk about the internal resourcing and then i'll talk about the you know, external partners for instance right like i already did mention that in terms of the program itself it's like a 12-week you know research-based entrepreneurship curriculum that is offered by Stanford faculty. Um, and it is a design-led process. And we are also offering various um, facilitation services like sustainability and impact workshops. And during the incubation phase, the storytelling workshops, culture design for startups, and you know peer founder engagement sessions, for instance, um, also community building for startups itself, and product market fit, profit models, legal advice. All of those things are internal, you know, internal services that are being offered by the community itself. As far as the outside network is concerned, there is, and I would say that's that's existing in almost all big universities, and that is a pity, that we have a lot of these venture ecosystems, partner ecosystems, 
which are within Stanford and also, you know, uh, I would say VC, um, sort of VC labs, which are existing within within the ecosystem, but they're not really connected with each other. Everybody is actually working in isolation, pretty much the same like anybody else. And as part of Lisa, we as co-founders are trying to, we're not yet there, are trying to collaborate with these, um, you know, with these groups. Mm-hmm. And like there are two groups, for instance, in particular, there's one, uh, one group, which is uh, sort of like a crowdfunded, uh, crowdfunding platform within Stanford, um, which is a VC group. And we asked them to come and um, judge our pitches and kind of cross connect those. together. At the same time, there are certain Stanford faculty run programs, which can also be supportive with to Lisa and Lisa to them, um, but they're not connected yet. We're just trying to make those ecosystems connect in a way that at least they have exposure to each other yeah. and they know that they exist and they could make uh, take advantage of those the, the, that larger ecosystem, for instance. Yeah, no, that makes tons of sense. I mean, I think a lot of universities are, I think this is the, the, the a little bit of the challenge with the network, particularly if you sit, I mean, you guys are kind of sitting kind of in and kind of cross-connecting across Stanford's different schools. But for many, um, many schools, they don't have the business school or they're not connected to the business school. And so to build those networks where if they're doing entrepreneurship training or pitch competitions or any of that stuff, how they're bringing the ecosystem to bear to support those entrepreneurs is like is a more challenging activity. So I think you're talking kind of sharing some insights around what that looks like and kind of the pace in which to organize that and mobilize that it takes a little bit of time. and particularly because it's also digital, which leads me to kind of this next question. So I went to the website and I was like reading through and it said, um, you know, um, we believe the generation of unicorn companies will be built remote first by diverse distributed teams. Um, Lisa enables the interaction through its in-house created digital incubation platform. So this was in the pandemic. So now it's post pandemic. Do you think that is more or less true than it was before? I would say it's absolutely true today. And it is even more true in future. If you look at Lisa itself, it's an offshoot of the Sun for Lead program, which is completely online. And uh, it was, of course, I mean, in, in during the pandemic, it it was successful during the pandemic for sure. But as alumni members of Lead program, I mean, I'll come to Lisa later on. As Lead program, we have seen the power of distributed global teams, and we've cracked that right balance between engagement and community building and that culture of innovation while the entire program is being run remote, 55 countries, right? And we are all super engaged as community community members and alumni members as part of that education program. When people thought, oh, online education, you know, doesn't work, for instance, right? I was pleasantly surprised. I had the same thought before I started to be very honest. So, um, and so we have firsthand seen what a globally inclusive community can achieve if provided the right infrastructure mindset, tools, and culture to succeed. Then you talk, talk about Lisa, which is you know the, the, the group that we are. That itself is completely remote, digital incubator, founders representing 36 countries, mentors, facilitators, everybody's like in different time zones. I think the only challenge is finding the right time to be to get to get together. And 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 that's and you know those finding those meeting times, but it works. It still works, right? Um, I would say also pandemic experiences led to shift in mindset. You know, with more companies embracing a remote first model. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, what I can tell you, you know, if if I have to say a remote first approach, what exactly it brings to the table? One, it allows the companies to tap into a global talent pool from mm-hmm. diverse geographic locations which means access to wider range of skills, experiences, perspectives. And I'm a, I'm a big, big believer of diversity. Anybody who's, who's, who's known me would know that. So that's one of the things that you get here. So you inherently promote diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. uh, and allow, allowing the companies to build teams, you know, uh, which are more creative. That is my opinion, because all not just my opinion, you all know the diversity fosters creative and innovation, right? Yeah. Um, then companies or startups can prioritize flexibility, allowing their team members to achieve better work-life balance while staying, still being at the same time 24-7 productive, continuous development can keep happening. You know, the, you have the time zone advantage as well. That is something which is very crucial for a startup, I would say. You know, the high cost associated with maintaining physical offices is not there. And those resources now can be used for talent, technology, growth initiatives. 
and we all are seeing all the advances that are happening in collaboration technologies and you know it's becoming more and more seamless i mean i think uh, it, the day is not very far when we'll see digital twins as well right i that's i am pretty hopeful about that um and other than a host of other things i would say um one thing or two things that people most often overlook is that remote first companies emerge from diverse locations which mm-hmm. means that you're not concentrated on the traditional tech hubs like silicon valley mm-hmm. uh, which means that any company has a chance to be become a unicorn if they have the right team in place that's one mm-hmm. and the other significantly overlooked one is that the distributed teams na- naturally have extended networks in yeah. their own countries and places where they are coming from which contributes to the broader reach of the startup and you can test it in many markets simultaneously so if if you are designed for that kind of you know product so yeah i mean i am a big believer of of this uh, remote first approach i i love this and i think it's it's interest it's really interesting because it really does compete a little bit with the current narrative in the startup ecosystem particularly from the venture perspective is you know teams go out to raise money or they're in an accelerator and it's like oh you need to have a CTO you need to have this you know and they're kind of looking for people that can be like full time full time ish they're local but what we find over and over again is that more people are not technical founders than they are technical founders right more folks are hiring offshore for dev and marketing all these different supports and so these the folks that we're working with kind of what used to be considered like offshore like oh they're just out there doing this kind of churn and burn work has become no they're doing really important part, team work for the company they're they're a part of our team and they kind of need to show up differently and that's an interesting dialogue because it's shifting how i think investors think about team um and what that means for you know how they raise money or who they raise money from or or kind of how we reassess legitimacy of a startup in a sense so we understand that teams are now distributed in all over the world doing amazing work together <laughs> exactly yeah that's what and it happens like simultaneously at the same time and everybody's you know working around the clock um yeah i mean yeah. i totally and 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 you know you brought in a very important point again here as well that most people these days want to have those you know those gigs or at least in the beginning right, or have some side income and when you're doing a startup i mean you cannot be completely having talent which is full time so i think that that's a great again a great problem that can be solved through that we can talk about so many things about salaries as we work with so many of them and, and and there's and there's so many new models coming out i mean i think we talk about like there's always the tech stars founder startups there's always those folks but as we start to see more and more accelerators coming onto the scene more that don't come with capital venture capital mm-hmm. like, you know mm-hmm. with resources or channel partners or whatever more and more of them are like hey almost operating slightly in a in this combination of accelerator studio where they're like we don't expect you to be doing this full time we expect you to be working in your business full time and or having a job and building something on the side like we don't actually expect this idea of like you can do you're doing nothing else but this to run super fast because the reality is most of you won't get venture capital so it's like it's not really realistic to say you should just quit everything you're doing and do this full time because that's not really a sustainable way to grow the business actually we're like coming to terms with like the reality versus a lot of the spin that has been put out over the last particularly probably 5 or 7 years around how to build um I, i think the community is getting mature as an ecosystem and so we're we're like testing our own advice now that we've seen it in action and we're like okay hmm that might not be really how innovation gets democratized and and accessed by everybody absolutely yeah couldn't agree more Um so you had um so I want to go a little bit into your background because you have actually a very diverse and interesting background. Um and so you were a chief innovation officer um and whenever I see this title I'm always like what does that mean? So I want to so you to like you know the title does mean many things. Um and I think it's almost like a chief of staff role where it, they also do many things. Um so what did you do as chief innovation officer and kind of what was the most challenging part about it being such an ambiguous role? 
And I can tell you, you're not the first person who's asking me this question. So the great question. I would love to elaborate on that. So, yeah, I was working for a digital health startup uh, during the pandemic as a CIO, everything remote again. And at the same time, I was also contributing to an initiative at MIT Media Lab, building pandemic technologies like contact tracing systems and vaccine management systems, etc. And as the chief innovation officer, I led the development of a suite of health relationship management tools during the pandemic. Uh, such as an integrated digital platform for case management and case monitoring for infectious and non-infectious diseases, uh, community engagement platforms for AI-based survey tools and integrated IoT solutions with businesses, schools, universities. Uh, Part of the project was also integrating a health equity tracker project working on data modernization in US Mm -hmm. to be part of uh, health platforms together with the uh, National Association of City and County Health Officials in US insurance companies, hospitals, long-term care facilities. Uh, you can call it sort of a sales force for public health. That's what we were building. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the part about ambiguity of such a role, it makes me smile. It is the most ambiguous role one can have in an organization. And if it is a startup, it is super challenging, no doubt about it. And, you know, the startup environment is characterized by rapid changes and a CIO must navigate through uncertain technology, market trends, consumer preferences. And top it, to top it all, I was working during pandemic here. So it was even even worse, you know, because you had no clarity on what you were actually working on. Everybody had such a certain agenda to kind of achieve. Um, and I also believe, you know, one of the challenges that we have as a startup, I mean, even that point, but also as a startup in general, is you often face pressure to show immediate results. Mm-hmm. Right. And balancing that need for quick wins versus innovation strategies, which need to be you know, well thought out about what should be a product strategy, how to innovate on doing your voice of customer, going and doing your market research. All that takes that time. Um, uh, I mean, that was, again, I would say one of the very challenging parts during that time. And I would also say that commonly overlooked detail uh, is when a startup team you might have the right mindset to innovate. Mm-hmm. But expecting the same mindset of innovation from your stakeholders or clients you're solving for, that is very difficult. So you could be an innovation, you know, chief innovation officer and trying to bring innovation to solve a problem which exists in legacy systems, which was in our case, public health systems, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you're competing against larger organizations, established companies, so bringing that ideology and strategy that you're working on as, as a startup to the clients who you want to work for is, is a greater challenge as a chief innovation officer because, you know, you constantly come, you know, keep getting hit back with, okay, this is not what clients are wanting. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I can, you know, kind of be mystified by giving you an example. You know, we I remember we led a voice of customer project that was rolled out to 40 plus government agencies in US mm-hmm. where we touched upon an insight about lack and need of right tools for public health communications. Mm-hmm. And what we realized was that during that point in time, everybody was, you know, focusing on contact tracing solutions. Mm-hmm. But what came out as part of that, that survey or survey or the entire project was that there was an integration, uh, there was a need for integration of behavioral science and communication design mm-hmm. about masks and social distancing, which was much more effective than actually contact tracing systems. Yeah. Um, and our clients were public health agencies, which were telling us something totally different than what the consumer service was showing what we should be doing in terms mm-hmm. of innovations. So I think re- reconciling different stakeholders while you're innovating that is one of the biggest challenges that, you know, a role like that uh, normally gets you to. So if you're thinking about, and this is like super fast, I, we just like breeze past like the work you did at MIT Media Lab and like we need to like not, we need to go back to that. But I do want to dig in a little bit to this because if there's some complexity here. So I've like, it's a two-part question. So one, you have a, a brand background, Yeah. this role. And so one, do we, we oftentimes think chief innovation officers would align more with technical skill, but this is really a, a brand comms, not a CMO function. It's like, because it's not really, it's not growth. It's not go to market. It's really about. Um, I will say the word for you. It's a design function. It's a, thank you. It's a design function, which is, so that's my mind. Yeah. That's beautiful. So, okay. So it's a design function. So, 
in that process, how, where, so when you look at the C-suite and even think about just like, I don't know, a CRO, a CRO or a head of sales or all the people in the mix, what is the CIO doing to align the C-suite? Because historically, if you don't have that role, you end up with this merger between the CEO who's doing kind of sales and is like kind of a customer person. And then you have the CMO who's really doing growth and marketing and brand alignment around the narrative from execution perspective and some strategy there, of course. And then you have your CFO and whoever else. And so who's thinking about the execute, like the financial implications of the execution. So what is the CIO doing to bring that all together? Are they like the better version or the more strategic version of a head of product? Like, and, and where do they sit in the decision-making hierarchy within the C-suite? I would say, I mean, I would say definitely it could be something that is, you know, a higher higher level of a, of a chief product officer. I would, mm. I would definitely say that. I don't like to say word CIO because often people think CIO is a chief information officer, which is not exactly chief innovation officer. So I would say, and that's why I said it's a design function. Many people do not understand design function. In, in US, maybe yes, but overall globally, when you say design, so people are like, I know, I don't know what, what you mean by design. So innovation speaks to people. People understand, okay, you want to innovate and there's somebody out there who's helping you innovate. Uh, but I would also argue that a chief innovation officer function is not just limited to product. Mm-hmm. It is also a lot of it has to do with the culture design as well, because innovation cannot happen only by innovating on product unless your culture aligns with whether it's a big organization or a small organization or a startup unless your culture aligns with what you want to build you know there's this famous saying which is uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast i don't know if you've heard that or not yeah, um, so. <laughs> so yeah it, i don't remember who said that but yeah I've, I've heard that often saying you know culture eats strategy for breakfast and that's true for for any you know organization and what chief innovation or chief design officer mm-hmm. in my mind does is aligns the culture of the organization with the product development that is happening at the same time keeps an eye on what the CEO wants to achieve, what the clients want to achieve, what the voice of customer is saying, you know, and align that with what is the strategy that we are innovating and we're kind of building on. Mm-hmm. At the same time as, as, a, as an innovation officer, you might want to be pushing the case for innovation that we need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a product, you know, a chief product person would only be looking at the product suite. Mm-hmm. But what is, you know, we might be having a portfolio which is doing well, but uh, as an innovation officer, you might say, listen, we are looking at product from a technology perspective, but we need communications, for instance. And a product chief product officer may or may not have that expertise to think about communication part of it, think about the brand part of it. So it's like an aligning factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I really go go further down, and, and you're making me think about this job much more than I actually ever thought about it before, but... A chief innovation officer is actually aligning the chief brand officer or marketing officer, CEO, mm-hmm. and the chief product officer, all of them together. May not so much to do with CFO because CFO is always going to come and put in barriers in terms of, you know, these are the budgets and we can't innovate on, we can't have product and we can't do marketing, for instance. But the other three functions is what a chief innovation officer would al- align strategically on. That's super, that's super helpful. And we're, we're going to kind of go further into some other items here, but that, I mean, the way, as you're talking about it, what it, it makes me really see the innovation officer as sitting at the juxtaposition of what I would consider R and D biz dev. So the future aligned to the present, right? And so every single C-suite person has different versions of the future that they're dealing with in their present, the length, the distance of, oh, from that. So the brand is really focusing on maybe now and the next year, maybe you have the CFO who's doing now and and, depend, and then is awaiting kind of direction to basically build out the forecast for the future. You have the CEO who's very future focused and not present focused. And so everyone's have different timelines of execution and the innovation officers really would kind of sit in that camp of like, I'm trying to lay the foundation. We think about this from a sales perspective when we talk about startups, we say, you know, if you have to educate the customer, it might not be the customer you want today. That's not really going to be your early adopter, right? But it's your future customer. And it sounds like this role kind of thinks about the future customers. Like, okay, well, what is actually that pathway? How are we laying a, a, a foundation for them to kind of join with us? And then in comes 
R&D incomes biz dev to like nurture that as they hand it off to sales as it becomes the timelines become closer together. So in my mind, as you're saying, that's kind of the mental model I'm putting together. Um, and if anyone who's listening to this and later is thinking about their team and they're growing and, and I'm going to bring this up in the future because I, I think it's actually like the super critical role because those timelines are doing, they're like both expanding and contracting. We have this rapid pace of technology. We have to move faster than ever, but we have to get people to adopt things deeply, quickly, right? Absolutely. So this role becomes like really important in that construction. And I think there's one part which is missing as well, which was part of my job. And now that I'm reflecting, reflecting to it, but never, you know, it was never in the job description, was also the enabling partnerships with future stakeholders. For example, academia, mm-hmm. or public health agencies, or you know, we also did. I mean, I remember with Satcher Leadership Institute, or you know, um, you know, wherever we could find focus where that could align with our product. That was also something that we were innovating on. So you don't only only innovate on the product or the process. You also innovate on what kind of partnerships could lead you to different kind of outcomes with the same, you know, kind of same kind of resources that you have. And that's something that, yeah, that could also be part of a chief innovation officer's job. Yeah, it's super interesting. And and because and, not many people actually have the title. So it's fascinating just like to break that down. And you've actually had, I mean, so many different experiences, you know, from product to brand. Um and even in this particular um, project with MIT, and so we don't go too much into the actual construction of the actual project, but more like you hopped around, like you you did a couple of different things from different types of industries doing focusing on different types of problems. Can you just talk a little bit about your journey and that? Was that intentional? Was that kind of by accident? Was it the same skill that you were tapping into to work across all these different sectors or were they really new skills that you built in every sector? Um, so I, I think most people that, you know, they don't often go back so much into my LinkedIn history, but I'm actually a trained fashion designer. And those are the skills that I'm using till date. You know, there are things that I've done and learned at that point in time in terms of consumer insights, how to tap into markets, how to, you know, how to think about uh, the holistic view of the fashion scene before you're building your collections. I mean, it's something which is which is very specific to this particular industry, but that's something which is relevant to technology, to healthcare, to fintech, any 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 area that you actually get into. So I would say what I'm primarily have been using. That's why I said design is the design skill, and I'm a big believer of cross industry intelligence. What you see in one industry is very much applicable to the other industry, which most people don't think about. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, what you can also do is you can bring use cases from one industry to the other industry where one industry is way more advanced for example when i was talking about this you know particular example of um, you know consumer insights and behavioral design and communication design um for healthcare public health agencies that's something i had done in day in and day out as consumer brand person and but that's something which is nowhere to be seen in public health or healthcare space and I was like, you know, there are tools available. There are analytics available. There is a way things can be done. And one can adapt that entire mindset, entire array of tools to a totally different industry and innovate on that. And that's where innovation happens. So I would say that my primary skills have always been the same. What I needed to learn in every space is the nuances of how different people think about the same you know, same kind of changes, adaptability. I think culture and mindset are the biggest barriers that you're dealing with. And I think that's what I've learned, how to deal with different cultural mindsets or people who are doing a certain thing. Like for instance, healthcare, I've worked in healthcare for a long time now. Um, and I believe, you know, healthcare thinks and works very differently. They work a lot more in silos than how consumer brands operate. And you see that clear difference and you can see that how consumer brands, they tend to kind of, you know, um, get the most out of what they're doing by getting out of their silos. What healthcare professional, you know, healthcare as a, as a system in itself could do as well. For instance, let me answer a question. But I no, no, yeah, no, it, it does because I think you know a lot of the conversations that I have with folks, particularly on this podcast, is just talking really about their background because it, it it brings so much to bear in terms of how they build what they're building and then how they support 
the folks in their programs because like that background, that history, you know, I think people think of it like, oh, well, you know, healthcare, or you know this, but you know, I work with uh, like currently I'm working with three different tech stars programs um, and they're all different topics. Like they're completely different industries and I'm a lead mentor in all of them. And you'd think, well, like Dom, you're not, you don't work in, in deep tech space, aerospace, and you know, you don't necessarily work in longevity or whatever else. Um, but yet consistently, I'm getting requested to be a lead mentor. And it's like, why? Well, it's because it's because the there's all this applicability based on stage, based on focus, based on, you know, and it's not, and so folks think you're only an expert if you know the industry, but that's actually the easiest thing to learn. Absolutely. Right. It's like it's all the other stuff that's the hard stuff. Right. And so I think you just a great example of that. And the biggest advantage that you're bringing to any of the places where you're not an expert is you do not have those that those legacy systems in your mind that you feel that, no, you cannot do that. Because, you know, what happens when you're an expert in a field, you come with all the things that you know are, are challenging in that space. And that's why you start from that position of saying, oh, you know, this wouldn't work. But when you're coming from another industry or another perspective where you don't know anything about it, you are much more naive in the beginning about what is possible. And but that exactly is the ability that leads you to innovate because now you feel there is no barrier, so you can do whatever you want. And that's how you can mentor those people with a different approach and mindset. Yep, exactly, exactly. And so you so not only have you worked in a variety of different sectors and places and spaces, um, but you've also um, lived different places. Um, and so wanted to know, so right now you're currently in Switzerland, yeah. um, which I saw your Instagram pictures look beautiful. And I always hear the Switzerland's like amazing. Um, so I need to come visit. Um, and the pictures uh, did uh, definitely do you service Switzerland. So just so you know, that was a beautiful, uh, those are beautiful pictures. Um, that, uh, tourism guide, hey guys, just check that out. You might be also be a photographer. Um, are there any uh, specific differences that you've seen around how the U.S. approaches innovation versus any other countries that you've lived in or worked in? Uh, Absolutely. I think I can clearly tell the difference between U.S. and Switzerland, Germany, where I've, you know, Switzerland is where I'm living. Germany has spent like significant amount of time, 10 years, and India, where I come from. Uh, so I, I would say U.S. has a very strong entrepreneurial culture simply because, and I think that's that's no nothing new that I'm giving away, it celebrates the risk-taking, you know, culture and embraces failure. And that is a process of learning that is fully embraced. In Switzerland or Europe in general, that is not the case. And that is one of the reasons that innovation doesn't happen at the same pace and scale that it happens anywhere. And, and people are aware of it. And I think now they are more and more getting to the point where they're accepting it. Previously, there was no acceptance as well, but now they're even accepting it. Uh, that's, that's a big you know, big hoop to jump. And I I do assume that there are people who are doing a lot of these, you know, um, going out and studying abroad and kind of doing these cross-cultural um, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, engagements that enable them to understand how startup ecosystems work abroad and in the US in particular. And that's changing the mindset, but not to the level it should, again. Uh, the second thing is, again, no mystery, but venture capital ecosystem is truly unique in US. I mean, the availability of capital uh, we all know, I mean, there is, I mean, the capital that you have in US, nobody else has that, nobody can compete with that. Mm -hmm. And it does not just support the early stage startups, but also all stages. Whereas in Europe, in, in Switzerland, Europe, I would say when you are really early stage, you still get capital. But when you, the moment you want to scale a little bit, you have to get out of Switzerland. That's not possible here. Mm -hmm. um, one thing which is common, at least in Switzerland, US, I think would be research and development investments. Um, I mean, in US, it's it's significant between private and public investments. Mm -hmm. I would say it's very much similar here in Switzerland as well. And also academia partnerships are pretty much there. I mean, Switzerland is also known as one of the most innovative countries, but I would say more in the in the context of how many patents they create, how many inventions that happen here, and not a lot of research that happens at the academic institutions, for instance. But I wouldn't say that is truly translated into commercialization as it is done in US. Well, that's really interesting because I think about that. So I, I do a lot of work. I talked a lot of So I, I track a lot of the what I consider to be as one of the um, identifiers of innovation in a city or an ecosystem is like the number of accelerators that they have and how much they're trying to produce. And, you know, in the U.S., there's tons of federal money that goes into startups, but there's also tons of private money 
And I think to your point, in Switzerland and other countries in Europe, and, and, and broad, more broadly across the rest of the globe, uh, for the most part, maybe uh, China being an outlier here, um, but maybe not even, um, a lot of the money is federal money going into federal going to patents that are really for the government for government use uh, consumer or uh, based products or kind of b2b everyday kind of SaaS products um, for the kind of populace are not really kind of supported at any kind of uh, with any deep degree where in the us we have a lot of that creation happening we have the federal stuff but we also have a lot of the stuff that's just like yeah that's just everyone loves you know using Instagram or, you know, everyone loves this new, this new social app or everyone loves this new clothing brand or, you know, and there's a lot of volume of that um, compared to other countries. And do you think that's just like, simply because it's not like a, a part of, to your point, the ethos or the mindset of other countries? Or do you just think it's like not how they think about value creation? Like th there's not really the, it doesn't really provide, I don't know, um, economy in a meaningful way to, to to spend time on those endeavors versus maybe some of the deep tech stuff that they might do at the federal government level in the different countries. That's that's a great question, and I have often wondered about the same question. And you know, I was like, why is it that you know US produces so much of these consumer you know facing kind of you know tech products? And part of the reason is I, I'm talking about Switzerland, and the US here, okay. Generally, if you see why is there is not such a big, you know, big culture of, of accepting failure or even in risk taking ability, etc. in Switzerland, the incomes are extremely high. There is very low unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, in general, you are supported by government in every possible way, you know, even if you become unemployed for, for, a, for a year or so. And that reduces your appetite for going out and trying something entrepreneurial in the first place. So that is why I would say when it comes to consumer product, you know, you don't really feel about, you know, don't, don't really think or feel about going out and doing something, trying, trying something of your own when you can already go and work at a company, even at a managerial level and earn almost the same as what people would earn at a director level in the US, for instance. Really, the, 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 the salaries make a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. The second thing being, then why does it happen that in deep tech there are innovations happening in, in Switzerland? Mm -hmm. And that is the reason because that is where government has huge support system to academics and institutions, to research and development institutions. Mm -hmm. So again, if you are innovating in that space, in some way or the other, government is paying for you to be innovative. So you have no risk, but you are still you can be innovative there. But if you go down the the route of you know innovating for consumer goods industry or tech industry. Um, there's nobody who's actually paying for it, you know, because there is no investment going from government side to, to, to that. Hmm. Uh, that. I believe that is one of the reasons um, why, you know, USC is very different kind of, you know, innovations. And the second thing is the scale. What is true for US is also pretty much true for India where I come from. You know, the domestic market itself is so huge that no matter what you create, you have a market for it and you, it is very locally accessible and you understand it and it's designed for the local challenges, right? Uh, same as for US, same as for India, same as for maybe China as well, I would say, um, because of the big, big, you know, scale of market, which is not there in Europe. Europe, every country is so small, like Switzerland is 8 million people. Like even if you created something and if you wanted to, you know, locally uh, serve your consumer market, you wouldn't make much out of it. You have to get out to go to US, go to, you know, uh, any of these, you know, uh, Asian markets to be able to survive. And that means having the understanding of that outside market, which you may or may not have, you may not have the financing, you may not have the budget, you may not have just simply the understanding or the resources to tackle those markets. So, yeah, that's my assumption. Mm -hmm. I I may or may not, may, may, be, may or may not be correct. That's a good assumption, I think, and, and to your point, and um, because you end up with, the U.S. just has, you know, tons of wealth and not even the population size that India, you know, or Africa, you know, continent though, but it has, right? And, um, but they can kind of compete with like, kind of attracting enough market share to make that make sense in the U.S. because of, of the dollars that we have here, for now the dollars that we have. And so, so for that perspective, but I think, I think you're right. But so you end up with Europe a little bit of a different game because the population is smaller um, the wealth gaps are smaller, but in places where they're bigger, you you feel that tension because you end up with more of that consumer-based um, entrepreneurship 
um, behavior and not and and really no funding. And so a lot of the communities that are popping up that are startup communities are in those countries where they're mm-hmm. feeling more of that pain because they're not able to access capital in other ways. Um, and they're not really a fit traditionally for banks um, because they're not really cash generating in that in that way, right? And so they get stuck in this in between when they come to the US or they go to South America or they go to some other countries to be able to access some of that capital where it's flowing a little more freely. Um, I, I wanna spend a little bit of time before we're done, I want to talk about your, your book and I, and kind of a precursor to your book. I saw this talk you did on, on the internet. Um, it was at Stanford and it was on this topic. Um, it said the science behind ideas that stick. And I wanted to bring it up because I think it speaks a little bit to some of the things I've seen also in your book as well, kind of following some of the kind of brand conversation. And you talked about six different things that make an idea sticky. Um, and so, you know, the first question I really had is, you know, you can talk about the six if you'd like, but really, do I need all six? <laughs> that was the first question. <laughs> can I just do with one or two? Like, is it is it is it a is it a soup? Like, I need to have all of them, or is it just like, and you know, these things all make things sticky. And if you have one or two of them, you'll kind of hit you'll kind of hit the jackpot. Sure. And first of all, I want to congratulate you on the you know extensive research you've done because you've done it on all sorts of things that you know, I could have thought about. So thanks for bringing up that question. Um, and if you did listen to the talk until the end, I talk about how these six elements essentially help you in doing one thing, which is convert your idea into a movement. And I think that is the key word. You know, how can you get at least 25% of your target audience to adopt your idea or solution? And uh, when you look at, you know, what it takes for, for 25% of the audience to actually adopt that solution, um, you know, without a vision that's not happening, without a narrative that, that talks to people that's not happening, without engaged customers, you know, and a community, it's not happening. Uh, so, you know, I've covered already the four points that are definitely a soup that, you know, that need to be in the soup for sure. Um, then there are two others that, you know, I believe, I believe are different from what most people do not talk about. One is, um, allyship Mm -hmm. partnerships. And if you, if you read the book, um, you know, you will learn in detail about how I say it's so much more important than your idea itself to be able to brand yourself, right in terms of what you're building at the same time, also build networks that can help you propagate into different institutions, different stakeholders, different countries, different you know communities, whatever whatever that, that might be. And that is the element that I talk about that when you want the right stakeholders in place for promoting or propagating your idea or your solution, you need to be able to build allied power, which is, and I talk about one of the examples of, you know, um, Girls Who Code initiative that was built by Reshma, uh, uh, which uh, which talks about you know how she had this idea, but what she did was she spoke with organizations, she spoke with politicians, she went to people that you know that this idea was actually incorporated in internships, it was incorporated in the way people were thinking about this initiative. So it wasn't that she was just leading a torch herself about you know that that girls should code. She made sure that all the stakeholders who are contributing factors to making that idea successful are in some ways also propagating that idea. So that is that is what you know I talk about allyship through partnerships. Uh, so that is fifth fifth point is also absolutely important, even though people do not believe it is. The sixth point is the only point which is you know the building structural holes between two communities that may or may not be needed in every context. You know, if you're if if there is something like you know we're talking about Airbnb or Uber sort of ideas where there are two communities which have the resources to access each other's resources, um, then the idea naturally propagates and you know it, it just spreads by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do not need to do so much of marketing and branding at the end of the day. But there are there are product-based concepts where it is not really necessary. So that one particular aspect, I would say, is may or may not be important in all sorts of ideas that you have. Well, no, I, I, I think it's super important because I think a lot of, about that as a founder myself. And a lot of what I think was how do I acquire the customer at the cheapest price possible? And paid marketing is the least cheap option there is, really. And so I think that stickiness becomes really important um, in terms of, you know, and I, I'm a customer discovery person that's really kind of 
where I built my background and my skill set about a decade ago when I was a tech service company. And it's so funny because you, you learn these things, like I said, you're a fashion designer, you learn these things, like, and then you think, ah, eh, it doesn't matter. And then <laughs> 10 years later, you're like, it's the only thing that mattered, right? Like, it's, it's, the, it's the thing. Um, but that understanding, to your point of the consumer, because once you have that ability to deeply understand the need and find out what the sticky part is of all the noise, like what makes the flywheel, then you unlock something because now you're at this like deeper level of truth that people just go, yeah, of course, of course, of course. And then all of a sudden you get the word of mouth and you get all of that two point propagation, um, which allows you to actually move into the market more seamless, faster, cheaper, better. Um, and that's what you're lo looking to do. And it really relies on that tuning of your ear to really cut through the noise, signal noise ratio and all that stuff and be able to say, okay, that's the insight. That's the gem. That's what makes it sticky. That's what people love and then run after it. So I, I, I love that you talked about it. And I think people, if you step back and take it out of like, I need to be a marketer to know how to do that. And just go, oh, this is about a human to human interaction. Absolutely. It was very accessible for everyone to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit um, about your book. Congratulations. I also saw that it was like top five or six on like Amazon for Venture Cat, which is amazing. So I was like, holy, because like you just put the book out like, <laughs> like a like two or a couple months ago. And I know when we first talked, you're like, oh, I just wrote a book. I'm like, great. But it's really, it's really buzzing, right? It's, it, it hit it hit a nerve in the, in, in the consciousness of, of entrepreneurs and that's something that's really insightful and useful. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. How does, how, so how does it feel? How's it going? And, you know, the book's called Trailblazer Founders and love to know, you know, what's the impetus for the book? What made you want to write it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, when I started writing out that book, I had a very different mindset. I was like, okay, I'll just write something because it's something I care about. But it started resonating with people. And, and I keep receiving these messages from from founders saying, you know, I never thought about all of those things because, and, and, I, and I'm happy that people reach out with the messages that they reach out with, which is what I wanted them to reach out to me with. Um, I have been working, and you know, about Lisa, like we built that. And I've been also working as a, mentor and advisor to various accelerators and startups around the world and typically what i see is what we coach everybody on is business model innovation product market fit how to you know do your customers and get the customers insight and why it is important to do all things that your idea resonates with the consumers that you're going after all of that true i'm completely on board with that but i believe that's only half the story we are not talking about the other half story that makes a startup successful. Mm -hmm. And that is, what are those leadership skills that a founder has that eventually leads to two great ideas? Out of the two great ideas, one idea succeeding and the other not succeeding. Mm -hmm. And I continuously always saw people, you know, founders specifically, who had everything right. You know, in terms of the idea, they had the right business models, they knew exactly what market to talk but they were just not willing to do two or three things, which were essentially building the right networks. Again, you know, what you're talking about propagating, you know, what you're building, you just can't be just building it. You need to also go out there and be visible with that. So they were not propagating what they're building. They were not talking about it themselves. They were not building a personal brand for themselves. And if you look at all the big innovators, you will find that be it Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or any of those people, they had a great brand and that is why their products were also successful. Mm -hmm. Not saying that, you know, the products were not great and they were not making the consumer insights and they were not the right place at the right time. At the same time, all of these people, if you really go down the history and see, you know, what they did in terms of getting out there, they built successful networks with the VCs, with the stakeholders, with the partners, with the, uh, you know, uh, potentially all the people in the ecosystem who could help them. And typically founders, they just con concentrate on the product. They don't you know, go out and start building those stakeholder partnership relationships. And I think that's where they kind of you know, um, lag behind. And the third one, which is very interesting, I have two, two chapters in my book which talk about the VC insight, what VCs think about founders' vision and the founders that they decided to invest on. And across the board, I, I interviewed... I interviewed more than 100 people for the book, but for VCs, I think I interviewed about seven or eight VCs mm -hmm. um, across different countries and in our context. 
And all of them had one thing to say, that they were investing on the conviction of the founder, not on the product. Which means if the founder had the conviction that what they were building was actually true and they were bringing that conviction in front of the investors, that is when they got funded and that is when they move forward with, you know, with everything that, that happened beyond. So I think those are three, four things that I talk about in the book that I believe that, you know, founders should not pay enough attention to and they should pay attention to. That's super interesting. I think the conviction is an interesting one. I mean, I think, you know, building business is hard in all contexts, but, you know, I think you can kind of merge that conviction with the personal brand is kind of one topic, right? Cause like, it's like, are you showing up proud of yourself, right? In the simple word, simple version of that. It's like, are you, you know, are you proud to talk about it? Are you proud to talk to everyone? Are you, are you comfortable talking about it? Are you comfortable getting criticism? Are you open to bringing it up? Because that really is the the courage of conviction, right? Is that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and there might be some bumps there, but like, you know what? Like, I'm really proud of this thing and I will work through it and I wanna share that and I think we see this a lot on the product side as B2B businesses are starting to look more like B2C businesses. They used to talk about like, you know, consumer was like really marketing and then you could send something really ugly to a company that was B2B and it didn't matter because it's an internal tool and no one, but that's changing. The UI UX experience changing, how it's communicated is changing. And so all of a sudden what the unlock for that was like, hey, we're all consumers and we're all making emotion-based decisions um, as well. and and we need to tap on into that through a human uh, human experience and a human level. Um, I, I saw your quote, you, I think you shared on LinkedIn, that was like the most followed unicorn CEOs raised 20% more money. Um, and it was you were talking about the ones that basically post more on LinkedIn, <laughs> which um, I ran an experiment a couple of months ago doing, some, doing that to see the impact that that increased volume had on my, my um, positioning in the market. And it was really, it was dramatic. And I, this also was new because this was not the internet of 20 years ago. And first of all, the internet of 20 years ago was like empty. So you think if I, I posted one thing, it would have been like everywhere and anywhere. And now it's so much more saturated. So you have to do more volume, but the pickup pace of that, of that narrative moving is so fast, like blows my mind. And so I'd love to know, you know, when you were writing this book, what were some of the insights that you were like, that just blew you away? They were like, whoa, didn't even know that was true. And like that you learned as you were doing all the research and surveying and talking to folks, you know, what kind of blew your mind? Yeah, I mean, lots of things, to be honest. Uh, as I started writing this book, I was actually just wanting to decode that, you know, what are those leadership skills? you know, that successful founders have. But as I started my research, uh, my focus narrowed more and more about minority founders and women not being able mm -hmm. to succeed as well as others in the complex entrepreneurial ecosystem and the role of bias in not letting minority founders reach their best potential as we commonly propagate. So I decided to interview, I mean, majority of the interviews that I have in my book, um, more minority and women founders who did succeed despite all challenges. Mm -hmm. And now I want to know is that if the same leadership skills are actually helpful to everyone else are also helpful to minority founders. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me that the social science principles that I talk about in my book are even more relevant to these founders than anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, the ones who, again, I will go back to saying the same things, but the ones who built a powerful personal brand, leveraged their networks, you know, got into networks that were previously inaccessible to them. Um, they did not get stuck with imposter syndrome. We haven't talked much about that here, but, you know, those were also, you know, real problems that founders faced, right? Or rose to heights when biases could not play a role, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So that was one finding was that do biases really play the role that we are talking about or there's something else as well where people could do themselves that could actually challenge those biases in the in the system. I'm not saying the biases do not exist. They do exist. And those are barriers. Uh, but the most surprising fact about it all was that these people, um, they had the courage to be visible. You know, not everybody has the courage to be visible. They had the courage to be visible and be out there with the idea no matter what it takes. Mm -hmm. um, and... 
as a starting point, you know, the first question I asked them, like, did you feel different? Were you different? You know, how was the ecosystem towards you? And there was one line that I got constantly from all of these founders. And they were like, you know what, Deepti, I don't even think that I face any challenges. I was not even aware of any biases in the system. Which brings me to believe that primarily the outcome of, you know, the the outcome of of you know how somebody gets mentored, sponsored, supported, funded, is not a function of somebody's brilliance of an idea or their ethnicity or how we kind of you know uh, pursue it, but it is how one embodies themselves and behaves in a way that says, no, I'm no different. You know, if you believe I'm no different and go out and search for opportunities, you will get everything else that you have out there in the world. But if you start, your starting point is, oh, I'm a woman, I may not get as much funding. Oh, I'm a woman, I will get this kind of biases, you know, and that is why I will not, you know, I will not get to the opportunities that I want. Your starting point can actually become a bigger impediment than actually the biases that are actually existing outside. I'm again not saying they do not exist. All I'm saying is if your starting point is different, you you have a higher chance of a very different outcome. Well, and I love how you said that last piece because you do have a higher chance of a different type of outcome. And I think that's what that speaks to is really this perspective issue. So if you look at the numbers, you're, you can look at the US and go, yeah, of course, you're, you're basically invite, in, investing in male and pale. We know that. Got it. That doesn't mean I can't build a business. They're not part and parcel. We've connected them to each other for different reasons. And you know, you can go back into the 80s and when banks stopped doing direct lending and they started being a passive for the federal government dollars, they couldn't, you know, all these things have happened to uh, create a, an easier environment to start things, technology, and a harder investment to fund things, right? And that's through some of the hypercapitalism things that we have going on here and over, over decades. And so I think you end up Whereas like as a founder, whether you are aware of that challenge or not is kind of an irrelevancy because no matter the choice is, am I going to make it? How am I, and how am I going to make it with all the tools that are available to me? If I keep on going and trying to, you know, walk through this wall and I keep on hitting my head, like at some point I go, this isn't the, this isn't the way to get through. I need to go a different route. I, I think we've, sometimes we put ourselves in this box where this is the only path. You know, this is the only way to do it. And because of that, and that ties a lot into imposter syndrome and, and ego and different things where you say, well, where I talk to some founders where I'm like, which which has been great because the last couple of years has changed. But I would say there was like a moment probably between like 2015 to 2020 before the pandemic, which I heard a lot, where like the language became like, how much VC did you raise? Not like, how's your company? Like and then the pandemic happened and everyone's like, well, I don't even need a VC. I'm just gonna build it like that. So like you know the the energy's flow, but the the behind all that, it's like as a founder and a person, are you clear about your intentions? Exactly. Right. Do you know what you want to build? And if you know those two things, then the world opens up. Absolutely. Right. And those six principles that we talked about would actually help you get there without any funding from any VCs. I can bet on that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so last two questions before we jump in and we're a little over here. Um, so if I'm a founder looking to build my capacity, why should I pick up your book? Yeah, great question. Um, so I always say that scalability of a startup is about capability, building skills of a founder. That's what I just said before as well. And um, I also believe, you know, and when you People most of the times when people are picking up trailblazer founders, they're startups who are just starting out and they believe it's only relevant to them because it talks about how to build networks and personal brand when you're starting your business. But at the same time, what I've seen over and over again is that um, the book talks about power and influence that you need as an entrepreneur that helps you build your business before you actually need all of that power and influence. So when you are a startup founder, um, you know, really in the beginning stages, you have your job is having the dynamism, the determination, the creativity, the innovation to start working on, you know, to, to bring bring that product to market. But once you get invested in and then you're thinking about, you know, invested in or you know, if you want to start scaling, 
your job as a founder changes completely to now more of delegating and empowering your teams to execute while you focus on the vision. Now you have more significant role in, in managing your board, your advisors, your investors, uh, most often navigating conflict situations with your co-founders, you know, and positioning yourself and your brand as a CEO, not as a startup founder, but as a CEO, because now you want to grow the company and have a vision that would impact the society or uh, impact businesses in a certain way, in a bigger way, right? And that's where all of the skills that I talk about in the book are, again, very relevant in terms of what is it that you would uh, need to, as I term it, to from to transition from a founder to a CEO. And that's where I think the book has been very valuable to you. And I also say always that people often discount the importance of having a good leadership coach. Every athlete in the world constantly has a coach, right? And the reason that, you know, you will see the best athletes in the world have the best coaches is because they understand the importance of constantly building their leadership skills or their their own skills uh, and get feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, And this book, I would say, also sort of helps like a self-help guide or a coach during the process of you when you are reinventing yourself from a founder to a CEO. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And, and, and that last note, I think, is super important because I think folks often don't, val- you know, understand, I mean, the cost of coaching is one thing and so on and so forth, but fundamentally understanding like when you're in transition moments in your life or career, when you do need that external perspective to help guide you through the next journey. I mean, every book in history, every story that we have always has a guide or a guru or something that helps you move yourself through these turbulent times to, to, to kind of new greener pastures. And I, we kind of forget that in the U.S. that like that's still part of the journey of life and having those mentors and having those advisors is really important for growth. And so I, I love that you kind of shared that. So last question here, last comment, anything that you'd love to share with uh, listeners either about your book or, you know, about tips you would have if, um, for founders today in, in, in building companies um, for success, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, again, I'm not sharing anything new here, but I believe uh, that there's a growing emphasis on purpose-driven businesses. Mm-hmm. And founders, I believe, should consider social and environmental impact of whatever they are doing, you know, in terms of building the ventures. Even in Lisa, we've started doing impact uh, frameworks for the ideation stage of when you're building a startup, because we believe it's increasingly important for any new ventures that are coming out in the world to start thinking about how it impacts the broader society mm-hmm. and not just in terms of making profit. So, yeah, purpose-driven businesses. So as long as the purpose is not just good for business or society, but also it is, in my opinion, a great opportunity for you to integrate the, its impact on your own personal brand. So that's something I would highly recommend that people start focusing on. And your listeners may not be only founders. I would say if you're innovators in your in your companies, also start thinking about that. Um, at the same time, I would say the pace of change that we're seeing technologically, economically, also political fronts, right? It demands the business to stay, stay more adaptive and flexible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where continuous learning, iteration, feedback, and that mindset is very important. So one is, of course, the failure mindset, but also at the same time, continuous learning and mindset is also equally important. I think that's something that people should start investing in mm-hmm. as, as a whole. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Deep Deep, for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. This is a wonderful conversation. For anyone who uh, wants to listen, you can watch the live streams on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Facebook, but also on um, online on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, as well as probably Audible. <laughs> We're all over the internet, so you can find us. If you have any questions, you can email them to acceleratorinsider at gmail.com, and I will also forward them along to Deep D as well. Um, but thank you so much for listening to another episode of Accelerator Insider. <laughs>